All right, good morning. My name is Andrew Pack. I am the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, if this is your first time with us, if you don't have a Bible, we have some over there. If you do have a Bible or a telephone, because we live in the future, um, you can open with me to Colossians chapter 1, starting verse 17. Uh, we are working our way through the letter of Colossians, one verse at a time, uh, through this, this sort of hymn that's there uh, in Colossians 1.15 and on. Uh, last week, Brian preached. The week before that, Pastor Joe preached. And now I get 12 words to preach to you. Um, so I will pray for us. And then we can dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day. Lord God, may we behold Your beauty. We understand that You've forgiven us from our sin, that You've given us a life in You, Jesus God. And I pray for us that we would see who You are and we would embrace that life that You've given to us. Jesus, we love You. We just want to know You. I pray You would change. I pray we would be different leaving here today than when we walked in from beholding the power of Your Word and the truth of Your Gospel. Jesus, Lord, we love you. Pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. All right, Colossians 1 and 17. So I was out for a couple of weeks. Uh, I missed you guys. It was, uh, it was good to be away, but it was good to be back. Um, the thing that, that, that getting away from it, it gives you some time to think. And, um, you know, one of the things is that, that also I really love this church. I love you guys, and, and, and I want you guys to grow as disciples. I want to grow as a disciple. I want you to grow as disciples. I want you to grow and me to grow as the people of God, uh, more and more in love with Jesus every day. And, and so much of what uh, is at the heart of the pastors of this church, uh, and, and as people who really do love you guys and want to see you guys grow, is that we don't want to just see you grow in technique. We want to see you grow in love for a person. His name is Jesus. And what I mean by that is that sometimes, if we're not careful in doing the life of church, uh, we can get very good at program, or we can get very good at some process or some method to do something. And I want you to have as many tools in the toolbox of discipleship as possible, right? I want you to know how to read your Bible. I want you to know how to pick a Bible. I want you to know how to read your Bible with other people. Uh, 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 Doing things is not bad or wrong. I want you to be in a community group, but not so that we can have one more person in a community, but because we actually think that's the starting point for you getting coffee with someone when no one told you to get coffee with them and talking to them about Jesus. You know what I mean? The community group's not just, uh, hey, cool, we got together and we ate and it was awesome and somebody made cool tacos and they were great. And I like it when I show up at community group and there's great tacos. But the heart is then also that it's not weird for you to go grab a coffee or a beer with somebody on a time when no one said, hey, there's a thing on the website that says it's at 6.30. Right? It's an ignition point. Because at the end of the day, it's not about the techniques. It's about us being a people who grow together in a love for Jesus. Okay? And, and, and I think the thing is, is that, that when we understand that, we understand that being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, is not just signing off on some propositional truth, but being in an actual relationship with the actual risen Christ. Being in an actual relationship with the God of the universe who the Father sent, empowered by the Spirit, to show the world who God is. Right? That's, that's at the heart and the heart of our church. And today we're looking at 12 beautiful, wonderful words. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The hymn is Jesus. So you can put Jesus in with the hymn. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, uh, and Jesus... And then I get messed up on my prepositions. And in Jesus, all things hold together. Okay. Now, if, if then we understand that the gospel is not simply signing on a dotted line and being like, 
uh, you know, I've surveyed the religions of the world, and it seems that Christianity is the most logical, and I do believe that it is, but if, if all you've done is sort of surveyed the options and said, that one sounds like the most logical, I'm in with the most logical. That is not a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is someone who knows, loves, and follows Jesus. It's an actual relationship with Jesus, not some propositional truth. We love the truth. I am a Bible nerd. I have a whole stack of books that are systematic theology and Old Testament theology, blah, blah, blah. And that's just their name. It's a whole bunch of books. Old Testament theology by this guy, Old Testament theology by that guy, da, 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 right? I love to nerd out on the deep pieces and points of the truth. But at the end of the day, those deep pieces and points of truth need to take us closer to he who is before all things and through whom all things hold together. It's about knowing and loving Jesus. The gospel uh, is not just being saved from something, and it is. Being saved from your sin and from yourself and from Satan and from hell. But it's also being saved to a life in Jesus, knowing and loving and enjoying the God of the universe forever. And so we look at these 12 words. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Because if you want to reduce this thing to technique... If, if, if our walk in life is reduced to just show me, how, uh, show me how to have a better marriage, show me how to find a spouse, show me how to do my taxes to the glory of God, which you can do, but, but if this is about you figuring out how to like balance your checkbook, that's just technique. There's guys down the street who will teach you that. It doesn't have any Jesus in it anywhere at all, right? And sometimes when we want to reduce our life in Jesus to technique, we get to passages like this and you just say, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. If all it is is technique, this doesn't do a lot for me. This doesn't actually teach me how to balance my checkbook. What does it say? And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, if this isn't about figuring out the techniques for the walk, but if it is about us knowing Jesus personally, this is pure gold. Because this tells us a lot about him. This tells us a lot about who he is, and this tells us a lot about what he does in the world. The whole Bible, the whole Bible, even Paul, is trying to show us who Jesus is. When we look at letters, we do this thing, right? And I, I, know I say this regularly, but we've got to be careful. When you read Paul's letters, sometimes you break it down to a constitution, and you're looking for imperatives, and you're like, what can I do? What can I, can't I do? What should I do? But what you miss is that Paul starts with things like Colossians 1, where he says, this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. And all those imperatives are just showing you how to live in response to the reality of who Jesus is. Okay. What is the point of the Gospels? They're trying to show you who Jesus is. What's the point of the Old Testament? Trying to show you who Jesus is so when he shows up, you know what to look for when he gets there. Okay. And so here we are with these 12 words. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. My hope and my prayer for us as we look at this is that when these words come alive for us, that these words would come alive for us and in so give us a clear picture of four things. Who Jesus is, the person of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and our life in Jesus, right? That we would see those things clearer, that we'd have a better picture of those. Uh, because at the end of the day, if you know Jesus, when you see Jesus, when you understand Jesus, when you're in a relationship with Jesus, this is what empowers change, and this empowers living, okay? Because here's what technique does. If, if technique says... My whole life in Jesus is to figure out how to white-knuckle either not doing something, 
So that's just try harder. That's just spiritual push-ups, crunches, sit-ups, right? That's, that's all, all you're doing is wrapping around trying not to do it. Or uh, if the sum total of this is like every other religion where these are the techniques to get you to heaven because that's not the gospel. The gospel actually isn't how you get to heaven. It's how heaven came down in Jesus Christ to get you, um, by the way. Um, but if you reduce it to technique, then all of a sudden, um, the only reason why I go for change is for technique. By that I mean, um, okay, so you party too much, and you're like, well, but to be a good Christian, I need to get up early, because that's in the Bible. You have to get up early and set a timer and read your Bible for an hour, or else you're not a good Christian. That's in, uh, wait, that's not in the Bible. Okay? That's not what makes you a Christian. A person, Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, makes you a Christian. Okay? And so if the whole thing is, I have to wake up early so I shouldn't stay up late or I shouldn't party too hard or I shouldn't drink too much or I shouldn't do this or I shouldn't do that so I can do the things that make me right in God's eyes, your only motivation for going to bed early is so that you can do proper, exercise proper technique. Right? Um, you're like, oh, I should read my Bible more. And I have a telephone. And my telephone will read me the Bible and my telephone will show me the Bible. Uh, and my telephone, I can also watch uh, episodes of The Office on my telephone. And if somebody from 1985 heard that sentence, it would make no sense to them in any way, shape, or form. But that's reality, right? And so you're like, so next, this is my thing. I'm going to hold myself down. And next time I open up the Bible, or I open up my phone, uh, I'm, I'm not going to watch Netflix. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to watch The Office. I'm not going to watch Deadliest Catch. And I'm not going to watch Cake Boss or whatever other thing you watch on your telephone. That's a really good show, by the way. So you're there with your phone, and you do it. And you're like, I'm going to do it. And so your only motivation for not indulging in your Amazon shopping habit, your only reason for not partying too hard is to exercise proper technique when the, the reality and the bedrock of change in it being about Jesus and not about what you do at the heart and core of that is the reason I don't party too hard is because Jesus is better than those other things. The reason I want to get up early and spend time in the Word is because I want to spend some time with Jesus. I want, to, I want to drink deeply the truth of who He is because He's glorious and He's great and He's good and He loves me. That's why I want to be in the Word because He loves me. Okay? So all of a sudden my motivation isn't I'm not going to party too hard because I'm a Christian. My motivation is I'm not going to party too hard because it's getting in the way of me and Jesus. And I want everything that gets in the way of me and Jesus gone. That's a different take on repentance. That's me getting to know the person Jesus. That's me understanding who he is and saying, I want to change because I want him and I want to be like him and I want to show him to the world. That's what I want. But if it's technique, man, I just got to go to bed early so I can do the technique. No, I'm going to go to bed early or I'm going to stay up late reading my Bible or whatever because Jesus is better than all that. The other thing when we get down to this uh, at the core is it empowers us to live when you understand who he is and this is who you're living for and through and by and with, that changes everything. Because if we only see the gospel on the one side of saved from, we miss what we're saved to. <clears throat> yeah, Jesus saved you from your sin. He saved you from your religion. That's doing things that you think are good so that people will think you're awesome or so you'll think you're awesome. That's sin too. Um, or, or the things that you're wiling out, your cake stands, you're partying out, whatever that thing is. Jesus has saved you from these things. But he hasn't just saved you from those things so you can sit in a lazy boy and wait for the next 75 years. He saved you these, from these things for life. So that you can live life in Jesus that starts right now and goes forever. And that's amazing. He doesn't just want Sunday morning. He wants Wednesday at lunch. 
He wants you to eat your turkey sandwich to His glory. He wants you to be on mission, not just when I'm supposed to talk to my non-Christian cubicle mate because that's what the pastor said I'm supposed to do, which you are supposed to do because you want him to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. But all of a sudden, everything I have is an opportunity to display the love of God wherever I go, not because I need to check a box or so that God will like me, but because I know him personally and I want you to know him personally too. If you don't know him, that's all I want for you. Because that's all I've got. And there's nothing better than that. It's Jesus. And honestly, if you're here and you're rolling with us, I don't think I can say this enough. If you're here and you're rolling with us and you don't become a Christian today, I'm still going to love you, hang out with you, eat tacos with you, and drink coffee with you. And if you don't meet him next week, I'm going to still hang out, eat tacos, drink coffee, or whatever. I'm still going to love you. But the best thing I have to offer is not a friendship or is not a community. I love this community. This is the church for me. I love this church. The best thing we have to offer you is Jesus. So what does that have to do with my 12 words? Because in these 12 words is transformational power because we're getting to know Jesus. We're getting to know Jesus. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Okay, so number one, the person of Jesus We're just going to take apart the verse. Twelve words. We can do that quickly, right? What's amazing about this verse is uh, when you parse it out in the Greek, it says the same thing it says in the English. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, let's not let something simple like that miss the profundity, if that's a real word. I got to know. I got the gong somewhere there. The profound nature of the reality that he is before all things. Another very simple sentence appears in the first chapter of John where John says something that's simple in English. It's simple in Greek. He says, he made all things. And without him was not anything made that was made. How often can John say made in that sense? He says it three times. He made all things and nothing that was made was made without him. He made everything. You ever have this conversation with a two-year-old? If not, you should. They get it more than we do. You sit with a two-year-old and they say, so what did Jesus make? Everything. (coughs) Do you make popsicles? Popsicles. Yes, sir. Trees? Yep. Sky? Yep. Sun? Yep. Sea? Yep. Goldfish? Yep. Kitties? Yep. Legos? Yep. He made the parts that human beings as image bearers of God put together to make the Legos, but he made it all. What do you make it out of? Nothing. I'm going to really encourage you, even in terms of like getting away from just having a technique-driven walk with Jesus. Uh, I think me and some of the guys were talking about this last week during setup. Uh, we live in a time and an age where boredom is ending. You all, almost all of you, have a telephone where you can get on the internet and do something, right? You're at the doctor. You're on the internet. You're on the bus. You're on the internet. You're checking emails. You're sending texts. You're writing things on Facebook to let people know you're riding on a bus with Wi-Fi, right? That's, that's what we do, and we're going, 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 going. And I'm telling you, you need to take some time to stop and have that two-year-old uh, childlike faith thought. Turn the phone off every once in a while and say, not anything was made that was made? You, the, the reality of that is so big that it's hard to even wrap your mind around the, the everything of the made stuff, the sum total of all things that are made at the same time. Right? 
So you can think about how he made trees, but it's hard at the same time to think about how he made oceans. And if you can think about how he made trees and oceans at the same time, it's really hard to think about how he uh, uh, made, you know, it's either all or kind of zeros in. It's, it's macro, it's micro, but it's hard to hold in your mind what God has done, what Jesus has done as he made all things. And in him, all things hold together. See how much God is trying to lay out for the, 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 the reign and the sovereignty of Jesus in this? How, how, how encompassing this is? He is not a clockmaker God that sort of puts the cosmic soccer ball into existence and gives it the boot. Right? He's holding all things. Hebrews puts it this way. He holds up the universe by the word of his power. So not only did he do crazy things, you know, like Einstein was a super genius, and he began to look at time and realize, hey, it, it looks like time isn't constant. Huh. And, and I'm not going to prescribe to a uh, uh, pr uh, specific like quantum physics theory or whatever, but that's the same thing Augustine said hundreds of years before. He said God made time. Right? Einstein wasn't a Christian. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to retrofit. I don't want to try and make my doctrine fit in uh, with science to the point that next week when we're like, no, 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 this is the new theory. You're like, oh, but I made all my doctrine build around this scientific theory. What do you mean you're changing the quantum physics theory? It's quantum physics. It changes all the time. Okay? But the deal is God made time. So not only did God make time, so we won't nerd on that for too long, but not only did God make time, but Jesus Christ is holding up the universe by the word of his power. By him, all things hold together. Talk about things you cannot comprehend on the micro and the macro, and we just need to take some time to stop and think about and be blown away. You ever drive? They're tearing it down so this doesn't work anymore. You ever drive on the viaduct? Do you ever wonder why there aren't more accidents all the time? All the time? Have you been on the freeway? Have you been to L.A.? How is L.A. not Mad Max everywhere? Right? Um, I'm not a scientist, if you can't tell from using words like profundancy and botching redshift, but, but I'm told by smarter scientists than me that within the molecular, molecular structure of everything around us, there's just massive amounts of atomic energy that if those things were just, if an atom was just let go to be an atom, if, this chair, if the atoms in this chair in front of me just were let go to be the atoms in the chair in front of me, boom, Seattle's gone. And that's happening everywhere throughout all of the universe, everywhere. And Jesus is holding it all together as we speak and when you go to bed. Right now while we're thinking about it, and in a minute when you forget about it and don't think about it for another five years, he's still been holding it together the whole time. Oh. What? He's been controlling the temperatures at the bottom of the sea and in the middle of the sun. And I won't finish this sentence if he doesn't allow me to have life and breath. And yet we walk around like we're entitled to everything. I'm not entitled to anything. And yet he keeps giving me life and breath because he's a good and wonderful and gracious God. Through all things, all things are holding together. He was holding stuff that Hubble would pick up on way, way, way before we even had the technology to see it. The old Zen adage, if a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, doesn't make a sound? Yeah, it does. 
Why do I know that? Because God's a God of order. So that tree's making a sound. Right now, somewhere off in the Olympics, there's a little tree building a nest or whatever, right? There's your nature, urbanite nature moment for the day. There's a little bird building a tree. Who's holding it together? Who's there to see it? Nobody. It's there for his glory. It's there for him to reflect to the world that he's God. It's good to get out in the woods because you realize, hey, all this stuff is happening when I'm not even here. There's not even people here making these deers do the deer stuff. It keeps going. It keeps going, and he's doing it all. He's so big. He's so beautiful. And he's so wonderful. And he's holding it all together. And I'm, I'm just going to say it one more time. I'm going to urge you, turn your phone off sometimes and just breathe it in. Breathe it in. You wonder what's going to set us apart from the world if we're people who stop and think deep things about deep, deep things. Okay. Number two. The incarnation of Jesus. Now hold with me for a moment those two ideas in your mind. It's really hard, but just hold them there. So, he is before all things. He's completely pre-existent. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God, three persons before all t- time. Uh, uh, we have to use weird words when we start thinking this way. We have to use words like eternity past. What the heck does eternity past mean? It means I'm a human being and can't quite think about what it is for God to exist before time. That's what it means, eternity past. It's out there in the time before there was time. Before every, I mean... Right? Thinking deep thoughts, right? But God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that also means that they existed perfectly, loving each other perfectly, uh, uh, one God, three persons forever, that God didn't even create because He was lonely. He's not out in space thinking, what am I going to do? He expresses love perfectly within Himself before all time, as a, and as an outflow of His love, He creates And he holds that whole thing together by the word of his power. So he's before all things, and he's holding all things that he made when he made them together. That's Jesus. God the Father creates through the Son. God the Father has the idea the Son's holding it together through the power of the Spirit. Hold that. And now imagine, I mean, you can't think of something higher than that. right? That's as high as it gets. right? Now, That God, Jesus, comes lower than it gets 2,000 years ago in a manger to a righteous little girl of probably 13. Comes into human history in the form of a servant as a little tiny baby. That, my friends, is the gospel. That is wild. We can't pause and think about that enough. She's just a little girl. She's 13 probably, maybe 12. She has this baby with a husband who because an angel is speaking stands beside her, walks with her, but everybody else, they think all kinds of things about that 13-year-old little girl who's having a baby before she gets married. And Jesus comes into that. The one who is, could not be higher comes what couldn't be lower. Born into a manger, right? Someone who's higher comes lower to do something that's costlier. If you go with me to Philippians chapter 2, let's just breathe it in. I love that I think everybody's circling around this one. This, this chapter interacts so nicely with Colossians 1. I think Joe, I don't know if Joe used it, but I know uh, Brian used it last week. We'll start in five. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You own this, Anchor Church, if you're a Christian. This belongs to you because of what He did on His cross. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be seized, to be taken hold of, is what that word means. So before the foundations of the earth, as the Trinity decides how redemption is going to work, nowhere in there does Jesus say to the Father, that is too lowly for me. Didn't you know that I'm God? A manger? Are you serious? Come on, dog. Didn't happen. He doesn't say dog, by the way. And I don't say J-dog either, but that's another sermon for another day. I'll stop there. Didn't happen. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, quoting uh, Isaiah 45, 23, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That when we take in the reality of He who is higher, coming lower, doing something costlier, we just take a moment to just pause in silence as the mystery becomes uh, uh, revealed at the end of the time, and we just breathe it in. That's what God did. That's the picture. Just taking a pause at the end of time to breathe in He who is before all things and through whom all things hold together. something that we have to do and be careful of. We go with two kind of extremes of Jesus. There's two. There's, there's probably more than this, but there's two extremes. One we'll call Supermanism, and the other call Woody Guthrieism. And I'll explain those in just one second. I could say Docetism, but you don't need to remember that. That's the fancy word for it. The, 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 uh, the word you'll remember is Supermanism. But we'll start with Woody Guthrieism first, because that makes less sense. Um, Woody Guthrie Though it's my understanding he was not, omitted, or not allowed into the Communist Party because he would not renounce Jesus Christ, um, had a song, and if you're a folk nerd like myself, you've heard it, but maybe you haven't, and it's just, I think it's just called Jesus Christ. I think you can find it there. Uh, but as, as, as Woody Guthrie tells the story of Jesus, uh, I won't sing it for you, but it goes something to the effect of he's fighting bankers, and he's got these followers, and they're true and brave, and one poor a uh, coward named Judas Iscariot. He, Lord, he, he, uh, he left poor Jesus in his grave. And it just basically paints the picture of Jesus is the proletariat who's come to fight Rome and die an unjust death, period. It's not God, at least from the sign, I don't know where Woody sat. I can't, I can't judge Woody. Uh, but, but, but essentially, he's this guy, he's the subversive of Rome, that's why they kill him, and, and that's why things are, are hard and weird for him. Um, and he's just a guy. And Christians have just kind of missed it. And, you know, Bart Ehrman on PBS said that we just missed it. Um, and that's kind of the historical Jesus, which is kind of a misnomer because it's not the historical Jesus. Uh, but there's that camp where, you, oh, he's a nice teacher. Honestly, that guy's not a nice teacher. If he did anything it says in the Bible and isn't who he says he is, he's a jerk. Did I say jerk? Yeah, he's a jerk. If you believe the historical Jesus picture and anything in the Bible is true in any way, shape, or form, a guy who's not God claiming to be God 
offering forgiveness of sins and salvation of the world is not a good man. He's a bad man. He's a bad man. Supermanism. This is the sense, uh, what one thinker has called the evangelical intuition. What do I mean by evangelical intuition? We spent the 20th century, you might not know this, and it doesn't really matter that much, but it matters, but you don't really need to know this. It's just background. We spent the 20th century fighting so hard against the historical Jesus thing that we fought so hard saying, oh, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, that we almost lost the Jesus of the Gospels. That we almost lost the Jesus of history. That we almost lost the incarnation. Because here's the thing that happens in the incarnation. He shows up and he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's tired, he's tempted. You ever been hungry or thirsty or tired or tempted? You ever been tired? You ever been ditched? You ever lived a life where no one understood who you are? No one got who you are? No one understood what you're doing? My mom understands now. But when we said, so we really feel like God's given us a vision to start a church in Seattle. She said, don't you have a job? (laughs) Don't they pay your medical benefits? Yeah, but Jesus has has a beautiful plan for Wallingford. I think we get to be a part of his mission and we want to walk out on it. She gets it now, but at the time she's like, she didn't understand, like, you start a church? What do you mean start a church? They're just there. How are you going to build a building in Seattle? It's not a building, Mom. It's a people. Um, <laughs> that's the way it felt. <laughs> okay. Where was I? I'm off my outline. <clears throat> okay. Hungry, thirsty, tired, tempted. Right? And so if, if we're not careful, we have this, this, this evangelical intuition. So um, Jesus is 12, and he's at the temple. And he's there with the PhDs in Old Testament theology of his day. And they're there and they're, they're just kicking it and they're just, they're just chatting. They're just going back and forth. And Jesus is just asking him questions. It's also worth noting, he's not being disrespectful. He's not being a jerk. And he's not giving them a lecture. He's just sitting there. He's a boy, he's a boy asking questions. And they're just saying, this is a boy asking some questions. This is amazing. We haven't seen a guy ask questions like this ever. How is he 12? And so our evangelical intuition then is to say, well, how was he able to go to bat with those guys? How was he able to interact with those guys? What's the answer? He's God. He is God, by the way. This is one of those sermons where you have to stop and preface it so you make sure you're clear and orthodox. He is God, but we got to be careful. Okay? So he's 12. And he says, and our, and our intuition is to say, he's God. And, um, well, how do you do all the miracles? Intuition. He's God. And how did he fight temptation against Satan? He's God. How, how did he do this? How did he do that? How did he do that? He's God. And he is God. But what we miss with supermanism is that we get this thing where it's almost like it's not real. It's like God's put on a costume and entered in on the scene, and he's Clark Kent, but under Clark Kent, he's Superman. And, and see, the thing about Clark Kent, if someone shoots Clark Kent, does Clark Kent not die? No, because he's Superman. The reason he doesn't die is because he's Superman. So is the reason that Jesus was not survived temptation because he's Superman? No, it's because he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who led him out into the wilderness. It's God the Spirit moving through him. God the Father sending his Son moving through the Spirit. And why is that important for us? Because we lose his humanity if we're not careful. If we lose his humanity, we lose a huge piece of the gospel. We miss and lose when it says in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way but knew no sin. The whole, one of the huge themes in Hebrews is that you can go to Jesus because he was here and he knows. And when you say, Jesus, I'm tempted, he can cry on his shoulder and he can say, I know. I know. 
and can minister to us out of the reality that he knows. That's different than, well, you know what? I was Superman. Yeah, you know, I was there with, I sweat the blood for a show. I was tempted for show. I cried out on the cross for show. It wasn't for show. It was real. It had to be real because God takes his life instead of my life. He takes his perfect sinless life instead of my jacked up broken life. Well, how can, he, how can he do that if he's God? It's not for real if he's just doing it out of godness. Now, he doesn't always operate out of his godness or out of his humanness. A great example of this is in Mark chapter 2. You might know the story. In the story, they clear away some plates and they drop a guy down in, right? Drown into the roof. It's a cool story because it says that it's the faith of the guys even who are dropping him in. But you can read it at home. It's Mark 2. And so there the guy is on the ground and Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now our problem is, is that when we're reading it, we don't always read it with the right lens. That was divine. Who can forgive sins? This is the thing they crucify him for. Not because of the bankers, Woody. Sorry. They crucify him because he was God and said he was God. He says he's God, the New Testament says he's God plainly seven times. And people are like, seven times, that's it. But if you look at all the other stuff he says, he says he's God all the time. The point of the New Testament is to show you that he's God. This man who walked on earth 2,000 years ago is God. He forgives sin. God. Calls him, says, before Abraham was, I am God. Before all things were made, he was there. Because he's God. But then he does something then, out of his spirit-filled humanity. The Holy Spirit moves. And it's God. Don't get me wrong. The miracles are God. It's the Holy Spirit. He's God. We're Trinitarian. He says, get up and walk. So that you can know that the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself, he says it like 80 some odd times. Pretty much only Jesus uses it from Daniel 7. Amazing. But I won't nerd on either. It's a nerding out day. I will stop myself. Read Daniel 7. It's amazing. So he says, so you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Get up and walk. And then he says, which is harder? Because if you're standing there with Jesus, he just says forgiven sins. And you don't see, if you could like lift the, past the veil and see the cosmic reality of what's happening when the God of the universe incarnate says to this man, your sins are forgiven. The same thing that happens to you and I when he says, your sins are forgiven. The dividing wall of hostility between us and God is broken. He pronounced that man right with the God of the universe. He said, all the stuff you've done to get in the way, every way you've run from, rebelled against, and every gap you've made between you and God is over. You're forgiven. Cataclysmic shift. But because he's really a human and it's really a scene, it would have looked like if he's here doing the same thing. And they missed it. And so he says, just so you know what I did was awesome cataclysmic shift thing, get up and walk. And he does. They're more blown away by that, and then they say he's a blasphemer because he said he was God. Okay, so why is that all important? Because then we understand he who was high became low. He who made everything came into creation to redeem it and to save it. And not only can he be our example, but he can also be our high priest. He can also be the one who relates to us. It would be a wicked thing for Paul to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ if it's all out of just the fact that he's the one who is God. Because you can't do, by the way, I don't know if you know this, you're not God. Uh, you're sitting at the Lego table with the kids. And you've got this plan for this Iron Man fort out of Duplo Legos with trap doors. 
and they keep wanting to put a lock on the trap door so the trap door can't open because they don't want people to get into the fort. And you're trying to explain to them how much you've architected and, and made and thought out and you know, drawn blueprint drawings for the Duplo Legos so the thing can open up and the Iron Man guy can fly out of it. But they want to put a lock on it and it stays down and you get frustrated. And in that moment, Andrew Pack, you sit there and you remember, right now I'm trying to be freaking, I'm, I'm, excuse me, I'm trying to be God right now in this moment with my kids because I thought through a Duplo Lego table in this teeny, tiny, in its instant and moment. I'm not God. I need that reminder on a regular basis. But I can go to him. And I can follow his example because his example, the example we're supposed to follow, is of utter dependence on God the Father through the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. We live lives of utter dependence. That's what we're to model in Jesus. There's a bunch of stuff we can't do. You don't get to say, you don't get to be like Jesus and forgive sins and, and crush the gap and the beef that Jesus crushes on the cross. You get to proclaim it, but you don't get to do it. It's Jesus who does it. But the model we follow in Jesus is dependence and temptation and enjoy dependence in the Spirit. And then from the Father in the name of Jesus. Let's not lose it. Okay. And he who is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What picture does this give us of the gospel then? You were built to live for something more. We have a world that wants you to live for your house or your car, for uh, whatever. You know, I think Apple just did the thing five years. They've sold more. That bird game thing, whatever, that you keep playing all the time. You're like, I really should read my Bible, but the angry bird. You built for more, right? We default to religion. We default to to the right things for the wrong reasons. We default to um, uh, uh, loving people and serving people so we can feel right and just in the world like our, our life counts for something. Now here's the problem. If you want to do good works so that it feels like your life counts for something or to make you feel better, you didn't give the dude a sandwich. You gave you the sandwich. You didn't give a dude a coat. You gave yourself the coat. You're just trying to earn some karma and be right in the world. That's what karma is, by the way. It's you not being nice to other people. It's you being nice to you. Think about it for just a minute. Think about karma for just a minute. If the whole point of being, me being nice, and, and I think it's interesting as uh, Anglo-Saxon Americans in upper middle class situations, people, people in that spot, upper middle class Americans, love karma. Why? Because in the, in the game of the world where people are dying without drinking water, they're winning. Right? I was talking with a church planner in uh, Burma. Chiang Mai, Thailand? Chiang Mai, Thailand, sorry. And he said, you know, well, what's it like for Americans to come to Chiang Mai? Oh, nobody, nobody messes with Americans. They're up on the karma scale. You don't mess with them. Because you live in America. You know how we live in Chiang Mai? Way down here. You know how you live in America? Way up here. Therefore, you're up on the karma scale. So don't mess with the karma guy, because then you're going to have bad karma, and it's going to go poorly for you. Because they see that we have drinking water, and our kids live past five. Karma is you being nice to you. Religion is you being nice to you. Doing things to earn God's favor. Doing things to get to God. Doing things so God will love you. 
So you didn't read your Bible to get at Jesus. You read your Bible so Jesus would give you an A on your paper. He wants you to read the Bible so you talk to him. He's not grading your Bible reading. He's not even grading your hermeneutic, which is how you read it. I shouldn't have said that one. There it is. He's not even grading the lens. He just wants you to meet him there. He wants to meet with you there. Now, what's cool and amazing is that when we believe this reality of the gospel, we do get to do good things. Because all of a sudden it changes. It's my response to God, who is everything. He was before all things and through whom all things hold together, coming down for me to save me from myself to a life in Him. Uh, All of a sudden I get to do all those good things, but I understand that it's an overflow of the love He has for me. And yeah, guess what? It also feels good. It's a gift. When you understand, Jesus gave me so much and I got to give some of what Jesus gave me to somebody else. I had two tunics and I gave... I don't have any tunics, by the way. I have two coats and I gave somebody else a coat. Yeah, guess what? It feels awesome because you're in the family business. Because God is using you to do His restorative work in the world. And yeah, that feels good. But it doesn't terminate on me. It terminates on Him. There's a difference. It does not terminate on me. It terminates on Him. And there's joy there. Everything that terminates on Him is supposed to bring us joy. Got two coats? Give one away. So we understand that we're to live. Then you flip it around. Just you're wiling out your your king Lego table thing that you're doing. You're lived, you're supposed to live for more. You're supposed to live more. We just love to wrap our arms around creative things and call it God. We love to wrap our arm around creative things and say, this is my meaning, this is my purpose, this is fulfillment. If I can only get to X number of dollars in my bank account, if I could only uh, get that job, if I could only get that degree, if I could only get that car, if I could only get that house with people that only like me on Facebook, if I could only find popularity, if I could only find rest in people thinking I am amazing, then my whole life will have purpose. No one beats the American dream. Everyone gets there and says, nope, empty. Starts reading Jean-Paul Sartre books. Right? Empty. Empty. Because you're built to live for more. Why would you straight up wiling out? Why is, uh, you know, 10 beers not enough? Why is... Uh, 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 15 Americanos. Why is, the, the, why is it not enough? Why is there a gap? Why is there a hole? It, it's not because uh, we always want to make it like uh, Christianity is not, not sinning or, 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 or the old impression. I don't think this is the impression anymore, but the old impression is Christians are just a bunch of killjoys. They don't know how to have any fun because they make it duty. You know what? The reason why I don't want to get loaded is because I want to get that out of my way and I want to get Jesus. The, the point of me not sinning is to not not sin. The point of me not sinning is to live. Because we preach half a gospel sometimes. Sometimes we get to um, what one of my professors called, and this is going to get lost because it was lost on the class, but I think it works because you get to say a cool phrase. Uh, but one of my professors calls it Jimmy Cagney. Jimmy Cagney gospel. And everyone's like, who the heck is Jimmy Cagney? He's a mobster that says the phrase that you'll, you might know. You dirty rat. And then you killed my brother, and then he shoots him with a Tommy gun. Right? That's it. That's the whole thing. The sin. You're a sinner and you need to be forgiven. And guess what? You are a sinner and you need to be forgiven. But the reason you're forgiven is so you can live. The reason you're forgiven is for life. The reason that Christ has set you free is for freedom, Galatians 5.1. The reason why we throw all that off is to embrace and enjoy and glorify God forever. To enjoy who? He's before all things. And in Him all things hold together. 
So what does this mean for our life? It means he's at work. You ever get up, sin in the same way you sinned yesterday? And you get up the next day, you sin again. You get up, you sin again. And you get up and you sin again. You say, but I'm a Christian. Isn't this supposed to stop? Isn't this, supposed to be, isn't this thing supposed to be over? And you can miss that God's still at work in your life. You can miss that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion because he's the one who's before all things and holds all things together and who you can depend upon because God who is mighty became small. And, and it's, it's this reality, right? The, the, the weight behind this and the verse that Brian was preaching on uh, yesterday, there's, there's this weight of the creative force. Yesterday? Last Sunday. There's a weight behind the creative force of God who is before all things when there wasn't anything but God. That we see that same weight coming to bear on his recreative power. He is the God who is putting the world back the way it's supposed to be. Revelation 20 and 21. He, uh, Romans 8. That somehow this world for being so broken and so bad because we broke it and he is fixing it will somehow, in a way that is not completely intelligible, nor should we completely try and explain, except for to behold the beauty, that somehow this thing is so bad, read Romans 8, is going to be so wonderful when he puts it all back the way it's supposed to be. That with the same creative force he came in the world uh, the first time, he's coming to put everything back, and he's in the process of putting it back together through the cross of Jesus Christ. And guess what, Anchor Church? That same power comes to bear on your life when you know who Jesus is. He doesn't call you a new creation for nothing. The same creative power, the one who was before all things, made you new when you became a Christian, the new heart he gave you, that was his creative power at work in your life. You are not who you used to be. You are who he has remade you to be and his his child, his son or daughter, through the power of his gospel. And he who began that work will be faithful to complete it. He made you new, and he's making you new. He saved you, and he will, you know, the Bible says it this way. You've been saved, you will be saved, you are saved, you're being saved. He saved you, he's saving you, and you will be saved. You're broken, he put you back together, he's putting you back together, and you will be put back together. To put it another way. So what do we do with our life then? Part of this is wandering out into the awe of who he is. You want to live a changed life? Don't miss the front of the letters. Remember I said that earlier? We kind of just skipped to the back for the imperative. Just tell me what to do, Paul. Paul doesn't want to tell you what to do. He wants to show you who Jesus is and then show you how to live in the wake of that, which is different. And so we wander out into the awe so Jesus becomes more beautiful than Whatever else you think is awesome. Whatever else you're putting in his spot. Right? And then all of a sudden, this, our own personal discipleship, our own personal walk changes. Yeah, I want you to have as many discipleship tools in the toolbox. I want you to know how to do a word study and to compare translations and answer your own Bible questions. But I want you to have all those things so that you can know Jesus better. Right? And as a church... 
Understanding this is what he's bringing together. You're a people he's bringing together, and it's beautiful. And then on mission, all of a sudden, I don't just bring propositional truth, which is true, but my job is to introduce people to Jesus, which is really, really, really different than knocking on someone's door and saying, if you were to die tonight, how would that work out for you? And they're like, you're a creep, get out of here. But to display the reality of Jesus who we know in our lives and our church becomes a framework because all of a sudden if we know this God who was so big and became so small, I would anticipate that our community would radically look different than Seattle because we're free. We're different. We're alive. We bring this truth to the city. I love you guys. I'm going to pray. King Jesus, thank you for today. You are gracious, you are good, you are merciful, you are great. I just pray for us that we would wander into the awe of who you are. That we would get lost in the deep things of you. And that as we do that, it would transform us, it would change us. That we would uh, be quicker to see sin, we'd be quicker to see idols, we'd be quicker to see the, the subtle things that we love more than you. It's easy to spot sort of big addictions or big problems or big things but I just pray we'd have some of those Lego table moments where we just see, I'm trying to be God and I need you to be God, Jesus. Help us to understand we are forgiven and the depth of the forgiveness that we've experienced, that we have been forgiven much, will love much. But also in our loving much, we love Jesus for much life as forgiven people. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.